As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League match day one. Problems for PSG who play M&M and only get one shot. While vindication for Alan Hansen as Man United finally get nothing with young boys. We'll run up all the big midweek stories from Anfield to Man City, from Sheriff to Nottingham, where Forrest have now produced our first firing of the English season. Plus, Everton, the dawn of TV football, more Barca disaster and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, listener, it's Thursday, the 16th of September. Have some of that. And have some of Duncan Alexander. Hello, James. Natalie Jedra. Hello. Hello. And Tom Williams. Hello, James. Nice to see you. Hey, great to have such a great panel on uh, for such a momentous week. So many big stories, so many fantastic games, particularly on the Wednesday night in the Champions League, it was a it was a bumper round of games, hey? Yeah, it was great. I think we had a quite a long time with the group stage of the Champions League. It was a little bit turgid, maybe. Like, you know, you could kind of predict the two teams going through from most groups, but with some mixture of the changing of the seeding and some big teams falling down the uh, pecking order a bit, I think this season's one of the best lineups we've had for, for many a year. And, uh, you know, just looking at the, some of the fixes we had this week, you know, Liverpool, Milan, Inter, Real Madrid, you know, really big games that you, you wouldn't be surprised to see in the knockout stage. And I think, mm. uh, you know, the return of football from the, you know, fans and, and things has really kind of, I think made people appreciate big European nights more than they maybe did a few years ago when it was a bit run of the mill, like, oh, let's, let's get through the group stage. But now it's like, wow, look at, look at Anfield full of people and, and really excited. So I think that's helped as well. Yeah, to think that if some clubs had had their way, this week might never have happened. Well, quite. Um, it felt to me almost as if uh, quite a few clubs had forgotten what playing in the Champions League was like. Because on the one hand, you had teams who barely mustered a shot at goal. You know, Manchester United, Barcelona, Chelsea, even though they won. And then on the other hand, you had these absolute goal fests at the Etihad, at Anfield, uh, in the Sporting Lisbon Ajax game. So, yeah, a very sort of knockabout uh, start to the competition this season. Mm. The results then, Tuesday, Man United, 
with another Champions League setback losing at Young Boys. Bayern won 3-0 at Barcelona, who didn't have a single shot on target. Juve got their first win of the season at Malmo. Chelsea beat Zenit 1-0. On Wednesday, 28 goals across the eight matches. Nine of them at the Etihad as Man City lumped Leipzig 6-3. Six goals coming in Lisbon, where Ajax were 5-1 winners over Sporting. And five goals at Anfield in Liverpool's 3-2 thriller. With Milan, perhaps the biggest story on Wednesday, though, was a 1-1 draw in Belgium. PSG's Mbappé, Neymar and Leo Messi outplayed by Bruges. Remarkable stuff. Both Ronaldo then and Messi debuting in the Champions League with their new clubs and both of them off to, to bad starts. Shall we begin our look back with what happened to Man United on a famous night for young boys in Bern, one of their greatest victories ever, First of all, well done, David Wagner, who I think we may have mentioned uh, in our previous show had actually previously masterminded a victory over Man United with Huddersfield and, and has now gone and done it again. Natalie, your thoughts? Uh, well, Ole spoke about lack of concentration and, and that it was the same problem that the team faced against uh, Basak Shehir last season. And this is uh, where these big leaderships, they, they have to come in. You know, I know Varane is not the most vocal guy, has never been, but he has all the experience with this. And guys like him, Ronaldo, even Pogba, they, they're they there also to keep them all focused. And, and I want to see this United team really develops that, really developing that strong winning personality that a giant club always needs to show, regardless of the circumstances. Besides that, I understand that it's always tricky to play with 10, of course, but like you're Man United and you're playing young boys. You cannot play their game. You're outnumbered, but you're winning in talent on the pitch. So I think the, the red card explains only partially. It's a matter of more personality. It felt like the, the post-mortem on Man United Twitter was divided into, into two camps. On the one hand, you had people saying, well, if Aaron Wan-Bissaka is going to throw himself into challenges like that, and if Jesse Lingard is going to play a bad back pass, those individual mistakes, you know, you can't blame the manager for that. And then the other side was saying, well, that may be true, but at the same time, Solskjaer made some, some pretty disastrous tactical decisions, particularly at half-time, switching to a back five, completely ceding the initiative uh, to uh, young boys, leaving a team with no pace whatsoever in, in midfield or attack. And I think ultimately, there's a bit of truth uh, in both of those. It, it, you know, in the Champions League, if players are going to commit errors uh, as, uh, you know, as glaring as the errors committed by Wan-Bissaka in getting sent, sent off and, and Lingard in, in gifting uh, young boys the winner you're going to be punished. But I do think you have to ask serious questions about Solskjaer's approach. And this is something we've seen quite a lot under him with United in the Champions League is, is not always really, you know, getting things right. And I think with hindsight, that half-time decision to go to a back five and, you know, the midfield three walking out after after half-time was, was Pogba, Bruno Fernandes, Fred with a fairly immobile Ronaldo ahead of them. You know, they were never going to be able to break out at pace. Um, and, and ultimately, had they come out of it with a draw, you might have thought, well, with 10 men, that's not such a bad result. But I think there was a feeling they basically deserved what they got in the end. It was, uh, yeah, it was very timid performance. And um, I, mean, I think it's slightly unfair making teams play on artificial pitches when they, they're not used to it. I, mean, I think that partly explains the, the Wan-Bissaka tackle, foul, red card a little bit. But yeah, it's just, it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back over and over again, isn't it? And that's the thing, is that you, you don't feel confident that 
you know, that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will learn from this mistake and, and move on and then and think. And as Natalie said, it's very similar to the group stage last season. And um, you know, they're not in that much danger in the group stage as it stands. But remember, they didn't lose a game, United, when they won the Champions League in 98-99 or 2007-08. Um, and I know that's just completely random, but, you know, I mean, they're all, it's a bad start. Um, and that's seven out of 11 defeats for Solskjaer in the Champions League with United as manager. Mm. And it's... It's just this is not very good, is it? And yeah, like Tom said, like bringing off Sancho when he would have been the ideal player to probably have as a as an outlet in the second half um, was baffling. And you wonder how long Ronaldo will kind of put up with it in a sense. You know, I think that's the flip side of bringing in someone like Ronaldo to a dressing room is that his influence and his you know force of character is is strong. And um, uh, yeah, maybe that could have a have an impact. Right. Well, United already lining Ronaldo up as the, the, the man to take over from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He stood next to him on the touchline after being taken off uh, to his chagrin uh, after about an hour of the game with gesticulating at players and, and shouting out instructions. What did, you, what did you make of a busy night for Big Chris, which started with him knocking over a steward with one of his early shots while warming up? And it was very sweet because he went to check on the steward to see if everything was okay. So, yeah, just to point that out. Yeah, I think it, it got to a perfect start. You know, it just fits perfectly. Ronaldo scoring the Champions League in his first match uh, for Man United for a very long time in the Champions League. So, uh, but after that, uh, well, United had only two shots if I'm not mistaken. So after that, and we know that Ronaldo is rarely the player that will come back to, you know, get the ball and help pressuring. And, you know, so in this type of matches, uh, I'm not sure how much of Ronaldo we will see in terms of uh, the team has to offer him alternatives for him to to be able to do his thing, you know. Mm. Well, a rum start for... United next up for them in the Champions League, Villarreal. Yep, the self-same side that defeated them on penalties in the Europa League final just last summer. Tom? It's a tricky group there. And I think we assume that United will, will overcome this early setback to, to go through. And, you know, on paper, they are they are the strongest team in the group, particularly with all the players they've added this summer. But as we know, Villarreal got the better of them in the Europa League final. Atalanta are a proper football team who, who caused them real problems. So... You know, as, as Nat said, that there were very strong echoes of that Istanbul-Bahakshahir game from last season in the performance against Young Boys, and I, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that United will just shrug this early disappointment off and, and breeze through the group. I think they're going to have to really scrap to get through. I mean, Ronaldo's not the top scorer in the Europa League, so there's a target for him, I guess. Hmm. Villarreal, by the way, hosting Atalanta on Tuesday night, and a two-two draw in that match. Natalie mentioning Ronaldo not tracking back. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain on Wednesday night went with a bold lineup of Neymar, Mbappe and Leo Messi. The first time we'd seen the Dream Team, the Dream Trident lined up together. And Tom, as you tweeted that evening, some brilliant attacking football being played in Bruges, but not by Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, Bruges were really impressive. Um, and I think, you know, looking at the PSG team sheet, the first time we'd seen the MNM uh, all starting a game together, you assumed that, that Bruges would sort of be back to the wall. The last time PSG played there a couple of seasons ago, they beat them 5 0. But they were really, really impressive, very aggressive, on the front foot, 
right up in PSG's faces and you know fully deserved uh, the draw uh, and you know their fans basically celebrated it like like a win at, at the final whistle uh, lots of really impressive performers Charles de Catalera 20 year old striker going on 14 very sort of fresh-faced uh, young centre-forward coped really well with like, the physicality of Presnel Kimpembe. Noah Lang, who is a sort of Neymar-style left-sided attacker who looked more like Neymar last night than Neymar did. And the front three disappointed. Mbappe had some flickers in the first half, set up the goal for Ander Herrera, then went off injured. We saw glimpses of, of Messi looking for one-twos with people. He had a shot against the crossbar, but then basically faded out of the game. Neymar was really poor, as he has been pretty much all season. Came back from his holidays looking a little bit portly um, and, and hasn't really hit the heights at all. And there was quite an arresting image when, when Bruges scored their equaliser. I sort of managed to find a camera angle that showed what all the PSG attackers were doing. And they were just standing and watching, which is pretty much what you'd expect from those three. They were all sort of on the halfway line and the Bruges left back got in behind uh, on the overlap, cut the ball back for Hans van Aken to score. And I can see a lot of teams getting joy like that against PSG this season because that front three probably aren't going to do much defensive work. And it it showed you... You know how uh, how far PSG have to go to become this this sort of you know world beating team we all expect them to become um, because if those three aren't going to really put a shift in defensively um, and they you know and, and they're, they're going to struggle to that extent against the team like like Bruges with all due respect it's hard to see them winning the tournament. Tom touched on Neymar's uh, performance this season and in Brazil there was a lot of talk about his physical side and uh, some pictures that made him look as if he is overweight and he was very annoyed with that. He gave uh, an interview after the Peru match last week saying that uh, the media and everyone, they should respect him more and respect more everything that he does for the national team. So he was very annoyed with the comments about his physicality and his physical side that he he's probably overweight. So I, I even got a chance last uh, this uh, this weekend to ask uh, Pochettino about that because I was covering the the PSG match, and he said that uh, Neymar is a great kid. is is an honor to work with him, and he's a very sensitive person. And with these social media comments, you know, he just needs to feel good about himself and be in his best uh, in terms of uh, physicality as well. So it's something okay. to you know keep an eye on. Natalie, he's got a job on, hasn't he, Pochettino, trying to put together this team that is supposed to win everything in a fashion that will actually uh, win lots of matches. Uh, the reaction on L'Equipe on uh, Thursday morning, Fantomatique, which I think whether I translate as, that as haunting, you know, with pictures of them sort of standing around looking shell-shocked. Yeah, I'd say ghost-like. If, if a ghost-like. player is, as, if a player produces a performance that's fantomatique, you get the image of like a spectre just sort of drifting across the pitch and not really influencing right. things. And that was... Um, Don't okay. tell Manuel Omunia. Does he have ghost issues? He was forced to leave his house in Hertfordshire because it was haunted, yeah. So. Uh, Is that yeah. right, Duncan? Yeah. Well, that sounds way more interesting than Pochettino's tactical headaches. So tell us more. What was the, How did it manifest, this ghostly presence? His wife said that she awoke and saw a spectre uh, in the room. I don't know if it was Jens Lehmann or whether it was an actual ghost, but um, it, it was pretty realistic, apparently, and they so much so they, I think they, they ended up moving. So. All right. Wasn't like one of the clean sheets that he'd failed to keep with <laughs> Arsenal, no? Yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, but returning to Pochettino, so it's all it's Man City next for PSG in the Champions League. So beyond the fact that uh, Mbappe went off injured, to the sound of thousands of supporters wondering if they should have taken the 150 million from from Real Madrid, uh, w- what exactly do you anticipate Pochettino doing to kind of resolve this? The fact that the front three don't do any work. It is hard to know because everybody's just really looking forward to, to this uh, formation with the, the three as if they are going to solve everything. But uh, I'm pretty sure that when things don't work the way that people think they should work, uh, it's going to be on, on Pochettino. It's absolutely going to be on him. And I think he, he's very aware of that. And of course, he has a lot of good options up front, but he needs to to create something as well for for the team to be solid, for these three players to to be able to to cope with with the, the with the creative side of things. So I I think of all the big names and Neymar and Mbappe and Messi and all the expectations, Pochettino is the person who's under uh, the the highest amount of pressure, definitely. Pochettino under pressure and Neymar merely big boned. Uh, next up, as I mentioned, for PSG are Man City, who did Leipzig 6 3. Let's talk about that next. So, Mr. Biasso, what's troubling you? Well, Doctor, my translator is constantly undermining me. Last week I told everyone to take five and get an ice cream, but he told them to run laps and practice their shooting. Sometimes it seems they don't know what they're doing, but with Paddy Power you always know you're getting top draw rewards. If one leg of your bet builder on a football game lets you down, get your money back as a free bet. Paddy Power! Pre-match bet builder bets only. Max free bet £10 per day. Excludes enhanced match odds. Min four plus legs. Min odds one fifth per leg. Online exclusive. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. This has fallen for Grealish. Cutting inside, can have a go himself here. Scores a lovely goal. Marks his Champions League debut with a corker. Okay, Man City taking on RB Leipzig Wednesday at the Etihad. A wild game. This City scored early. From time to time, it looked like Jesse Marsh's Leipzig might be getting back into it, only for wham, City to slam the door on them with another goal. And it kind of turns out they don't need a striker after all, Man City, because now 11 different players have scored for them this season already. Yeah, while we are all discussing if City needs a striker or not, they just keep improving as a team. And, and we've seen it happen all last season and it's an ongoing process and I have no doubts that Pep will make a point in finding as many ways possible to score as he can without a real striker, you know, because the way the players up front are moving and they, they're, they, they're understanding that they have on each other's movements, you know, just offers more dangerous situations than most of the teams who play with a, a like a player as a reference inside the box. And of course, City would benefit from having a striker. Nobody's arguing against that, but it won't hold them back. And they are proving it week after week since last season. And with beautiful goals, you know, Grealish scoring a very Grealish goal, cutting inside from left with the dribbling and the effect on the shot and, and the Cancelo goal was just outstanding is this upcoming game against PSG kind of interesting two different visions clashing the team with no strikers and everybody working hard and the team with three strikers and everyone standing around looking at each other 
Well, it's also sort of player power versus managerial strength, isn't it? If you look at the really successful teams, it's where the manager dominates that club and, you know, he, the players do what he tells them to, you know, Klopp, Guardiola, etc. And you look at teams, maybe Solskjaer a little bit and Pochettino, where they look slightly worried that they know they've got to get certain players in the team and it's like, well, I hope it works and if it doesn't, I'm going to, you know, be blamed. And I think, as Natalie said, like not having an out-and-out striker, you, but you looked at that team last night and it was like, hang on, there's Bernardo Silva, there's Mares, there's De Bruyne, there's Grealish, and then they're bringing on Foden, they're bringing on Sterling. It's like, this is, um, that's a lot of attacking threat. And uh, yeah, I mean, a few sort of raw numbers on that game. City, the second fastest team to 50 Champions League wins in the competition's history, which... It's slightly strange. I don't think anyone really. I know they've done well recently and got to the final and the quarters and stuff, but um, you don't really think of City as doing that well in the Champions League in the you know overall. Who who's the, who's the fastest? Uh, so City did it in ninety one games. Real Madrid inevitably did it in eighty eight. So pretty mm. pretty good company to be in. Um, and then obviously we should probably point out that Nkunku got a hat trick. Um, even though he lost the game, which is only the fourth player in Champions League history to score a hat-trick and lose, alongside quiz fans. Uh, original Ronaldo against Manchester United in 2003, in the game everyone forgets United did technically win. Um, Gareth Bale for Spurs against Inter. Uh, Kovecci last year against Leipzig, so they know what, they've been on both ends, and then obviously last night. So, uh, yeah, it was a brilliant match. It was, as Tom said earlier, it was didn't even seem like a football game. It had a tennis score at the end, and it was a bit random but I liked it and just going back to the sort of the, the Man City PSG comparison I thought one of the most arresting images from that City game was the sight of Pep Guardiola haranguing Riyad Mahrez on the touchline really you know having a go at him you know, clearly having you know a disagreement of some description there was also a bit where he was sort of you know put a flea in Jack Grealish's ear and, and that's something you get with City that you know everyone is involved everyone puts an effort in and obviously you look at PSG and you know currently at least you, you don't see the same thing and there was an interesting stat I saw from this group was that in terms of overall distance covered PSG's players ran 103.8 kilometres last night every other team in the group so that's Bruges their opponents but also City and Leipzig ran at least 110 kilometres which just shows that you've got, you know, three teams in that group who were all sort of playing as a team. And then you've got one team who are, as they have been for quite a long time, a group of individuals. And, and one of the wonderful things about Pochettino's Spurs was that they were a proper team, that they did all, you know, muck in together. And have it's his challenge now to try and do that with fleas in their ears, you know, mm. throughout each game. And he's got to try and do that with PSG. And the last two managers have, have failed. How, how do you say that in French, flea in the ear? I suspect there's probably a different idiom. Mm. It, I was French, just thinking, it's a, one, a phrase think. you don't hear enough, I think. Putting a flea in your ear in Portuguese, Natalie? Yeah. Okay. I'm, tr- I'm, I'm really trying to do the yeah, translation. Yeah. But, but I you know what it... Do, have, you, have you heard that before? Put a flea in uh, their ear. It's like the no, second just, time, yeah. Okay, it's basically well, and that's three now. But yeah, but uh, so it's it's basically when you choose somebody out or when you kind of tell somebody off or yeah. Uh, City have now scored sixteen goals in the past three home matches. Woof. Uh, RB Leipzig have now conceded ten goals in their last two matches. That's not great. Uh, good. Very entertaining night of football on Wednesday. Elsewhere, we had that Ajax five-one victory over Sporting at Sporting. 
with four of the goals scored by Sebastian Allaire. Does everybody want to talk about Sebastian Allaire and how much better he is when he's actually registered to play in the tournament? Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm guessing Ajax fans are looking at that and thinking, yeah, I think we missed something last season. He was supposed to be registered uh, after the transfer window to play for Ajax uh, in Europe. And someone kind of forgot about it, you know, they just let it slip and he in the end he wasn't he wasn't registered he was signed on time but he wasn't registered someone simply forgot so flee in the air for the bureaucrat that messed that up (laughs) (laughs) also in that group uh, Dortmund won at Besiktas 2-1 of course Erling Haaland scored but it was really Jude Bellingham who stole the show here scoring one goal and setting up the other I just wanted to point out that you know, sometimes club football Twitter is very good, but Bruce Dortmund just tweeted, Jude Bellingham is good at football, which is true. But I mean, you know, and it inevitably got thousands and thousands of likes and retweets. But I mean, put a bit more effort in than that, I would say. But anyway. I quite enjoyed the Bellingham Harland chest bump goal celebration. Mm. You don't get many chest bumps these days. It's a bit throwback. You'd be a brave man to chest pump Erling Haaland as well. You you would be a very brave man to chest pump Erling Haaland. Did you also see that when Erling Haaland was giving a post match interview, Jude Bellingham came up and, and gave him a little peck on the on the cheek, maybe even oh. on the neck? Actually, it was a, a lovely a lovely moment. That is nice. Elsewhere, feel good KGB connected post Soviet soccer startup Sheriff Tiraspol won their debut Champions League match, beating Shakhtar Donetsk two nil. His Listener Mitchell Sterling, the sheriff do like it. Rock the Shakhtar, rock the Shakhtar. Very good. Yeah. Uh, goals from Adama Traore and Momo Yansani. They travel to Madrid next to a sheriff, a Real Madrid who won on Wednesday night 1 0 late on at San Siro against uh, Inter. On Tuesday, meanwhile, there was that hugely anticipated Bayern Barcelona game. And Natalie, 3-0 to Bayern this time, which numerically better than 8-2. But in terms of the football, was it much better from Barcelona's point of view? Yeah. Well, on first half, I thought Barcelona was very organized defending because I think that was everybody's main concern after the, the A2, of, of course. I like the line of five. Uh, Bayern Munich didn't manage to be brilliant, but when they did have the ball, you couldn't see, when Barcelona had the ball, you, you couldn't see that aggressiveness that we all enjoy in Barcelona's game. You know, you, you couldn't see where the offensive actions they were taking could lead to real danger. We, we had to... and. We know. I know we have to get used to seeing these very young talents who have been showing personality on the pitch, and we have to get used to the idea that it's an unusual season for Barcelona, but we cannot get used to Barcelona not having shot on targets ever because they have a commitment with the style of play, either if you have star players or don't, and that's what happened on second half. Uh, Bayern Munich wasn't that brilliant Bayern Munich, Lewandowski didn't have a brilliant match, but he doesn't need many chances, and that's what great strikers do. So they do their best with the chances that they do have. I think it, it wasn't great for, for Barcelona. It could have been worse, but in terms of offensive, uh, the, the offensive side was very poor. I think the one potential glimmer of hope for Barcelona is that they are still missing important players. You know, this isn't the, the finished article. They're without Ansu Fati. They're still without Usman Dembele. Sergio Aguero hasn't yet made his debut. You know, the Depay, Luke de Jong 
dream strike force is not their kind of ultimate uh, ambition and when those players are all back they should they should start to look a little bit better um you know they had an extremely young team out uh, against mm. Bayern Munich and the gulf between the two teams was was quite apparent but we we should probably flag up the fact that I think the best time to judge this Barcelona team will be in a few months when those players are back and and, and Ronald Koeman has had a chance to to knit the team together uh, a little bit more. And they may make a decent run in the Europa League. We, we shall see. Uh, there were some suggestions that Koeman was using his substitutions in that game to send a bit of a message to Laporta amid uh, other reports that tension is building between the club and the manager. Yeah, because he chose to to play uh, very young players, uh, and he actually it, it took some time for him to 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 play Coutinho, for example. So so maybe that's the message that he's trying to 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 give to Laporta in terms of look, I don't have many players, I don't have many options, and I'm gonna have to to get by with these young players who showed personality. They 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 didn't do bad. They they, they played well. But we'll have to wait and see. Just to put into context how much Barcelona have fallen from, from their great heights, they've since the start of last season, they've had three home Champions League defeats by three or more goals, which is one more than they did in their first 24 Champions League seasons combined. So, wow. uh, you know, anyone who says the new Camp is a tough place to go, it used to be. It used to be. Is the new Camp the new Burnley in that sense? You know, used yeah. to be a tough place to visit. Mm. Well, we'll come on to that later, I think. But yeah, very much so. They could twin the, the people start twinning football grounds. Maybe Turf Moor and and the New Camp are a good starting point. Indeed. Well, next up to a stadium that is like no other, Anfield, for Liverpool Milan. Is it fair to say that this one lived up pretty much to those two illustrious previous encounters, the Champions League finals of two thousand and five and two thousand and seven? Well, the first 25 minutes were like a juice of Liverpool. You know, the pace, the aggressiveness, the attitude. It was amazing. Liverpool had 14 shots on the first half and Milan had four and scored two. Uh, Liverpool had 23 shots uh, in total and we've been seeing players who weren't delivering last season uh, as much and are really much better now you know Trent started really well Mane was great when he came on on second half and Klopp said something that I think sums up a, a bit of our feelings regarding that match in terms of of a neutral perspective it's the football I want to see and I think it's the football we all want to see because it was just brilliant yeah, that first 15 minutes was the sort of football people uh, thought Liverpool would do all the time when Klopp first came. It was just relentless. Um, and yeah, Milan did score two goals before the break, but I don't think it felt like Liverpool were going to crumble like they would have done last season. They, Milan did have a goal disallowed early in the second half for offside. But yeah, I think it was just, for me, it really made the difference between last season with no fans and, and this season. I know it's a cliche with about Anfield and European nights, but it really, I think what summed it up actually was when Jordan Henderson scored the winner with a brilliant half volley. If you imagine that goal going in and hearing the sort of the thwack of the net and a bit of stanchion or whatever, then it would have still been a good goal, but not the same as that roar that, that accompanied it. And um, 
and then it cut to the touchline and I think Thiago was preparing to come on and and Klopp just picked him up like a, you'd pick up your gran at a wedding and it was just those sort of kind of emotional moments that you can't really get in an empty stadium and uh, you know I read a few of the um, Milan reports from Gazetta and stuff from the game and you know they were talking about the atmosphere and and I think it really did sort of reiterate how this is what football is about, really. And, um, yeah, as we said at the start of the show, you didn't, didn't always get that in the group stage. It's a, it's a brilliant way to start the group. You'd only pick up your gran at a wedding like that if you were performing a Heimlich manoeuvre. It was like a bear hug from behind. You've never you seen the way my gran around at weddings, Duncan. Just swallowing <laughs> celery in a very outlandish way. I really would like to attend one of those weddings, really. <laughs> Heimlich's for everyone. Yeah. Well, anyway, Liverpool didn't choke, and that's the main thing, even though they did have a bit of a wobble when Mo Salah missed that penalty after, what was it, 17 successful spot kicks he, in a row, Duncan? He missed his first one for Liverpool against Huddersfield, and then he scored 17 in a row, yeah, and then this was the second miss. It wasn't a regular penalty, but also... Very unusually, the Liverpool fans were singing his name as he was preparing to take the penalty, which I've never really seen. Normally crowds go, but, you know, it's a kind of a hushed hubbub as someone's waiting to take a penalty, and they were singing his song. Did that put him off? We'll never know. But he, mm. uh, his goal, his equaliser, should be pointed out. The assist from Divock Origi was amazing, kind of scooped pass over the defence. Um, and then Salah didn't think it should be, you know, he thought he was offside, which I've not seen you know, that's very post VAR celebration. Like, let's just wait and see what the TV men say before we celebrate. It's not post VAR, though. Right, I mean, we still yeah. have VAR, but yeah, I take your point. Uh, mm. Divock Origi, Daniel Story, pointing out that he has almost as many Champions League appearances, Divock Origi, as the entire Milan side. And just a quick word for Milan, uh, Duncan, you never felt that they were going to win this game, even when they were two on up. But it was still a pretty fabulous performance by this this young side. Yeah, and I thought it was really good that they scored the goals in front of the the fans as well. You know, like again, fed into that general vibe from the game of everyone enjoying themselves. Like there was, you know, huge bundles amongst the visiting fans. One one person wearing a mask, which seems a little bit, you know, <laughs> pointless at that point. They're all just right. tumbling over each other. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, just a really really enjoyable European night of football. Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, also this midweek, holders Chelsea won 1-0 at home to Zenit, which was less eventful as fixtures went midweek. Uh, Romelu Lukaku, of course, breaking down that stubborn uh, Russian champion side uh, 69 minutes in. Potentially a game they wouldn't have won last season, certainly not with Lukaku scoring for them because he wasn't there. But next up for Chelsea is an intriguing London derby with Tottenham. And let's get on to that next as we start to unpack the Premier League weekend after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. With Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is handy for when Spurs stop pretending to be this ruthless winning machine and revert back to type. Ready for the fast bit? Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's over 18's only. And please, gamble responsibly. Match day five in the Premier League starts Friday night. A listener with the Newcastle hosting Leeds Saturday. You've got Wolves-Brentford at lunchtime, then four matches at 3 o'clock. Norwich-Watford, Burnley-Arsenal, Man City Saints and Liverpool taking on Crystal Palace. Then Villa host Everton at tea time. Sunday, Brighton welcome Leicester to the Amex. West Ham get a visit from Man United. And the weekend rounds off with that derby. Tottenham against Chelsea. Ooh, nice timing this from Spurs. They're coming off defeat at Palace. They're facing the European champions and they've got a major defensive crisis going on. Tanganga suspended. Adair, not sure if he's going to be fit for the game. And they might be going with Davinson Sanchez and Christian Romero as their centre-back partnership against Lukaku and company. Uh, That's not going to go down particularly well. I mean, I think it just shows how sort of fragile Spurs' momentum is. Um, in this early part of the season. Obviously had a very difficult summer with the whole Harry Kane saga, you know, going into the season without a huge amount of optimism and then they managed to grind out those three 1-0 wins and they're top of the table and Spurs fans are just starting to believe that actually it might not be so bad and they lose 3-0 at Palace. Absolutely calamitous performance. Defenders are dropping like flies and now they've got Romelu Lukaku and Chelsea turning up. Um, And yeah, I I feel like the, the sort of the reaction to that Crystal Palace defeat, um, certainly the reaction that I've seen on social media, has actually been quite sort of severe. You know, people pointing the finger at Nuno Espirito Santo, uh, you know, his his inability to sort of seize control of the game, this fear that he might end up just proving a Mourinho light who, you know, doesn't really want to play particularly good football and, and is a bit reactive. Uh, obviously, the sort of... Um, various absentees uh, will, uh, will will weigh against them, and then they've got the derby uh, next weekend against Arsenal to follow. So yeah, it feels potentially could be quite a difficult afternoon for Spurs. This mm, it's not just the Palace game. And Duncan, the stats about the number of shots that they're creating are uh, not very encouraging for Spurs supporters. Yeah, they're, they're averaging nine point five shots a game. Uh, this season, which is the lowest ever recorded by a Tottenham team in a Premier League season. Obviously, small sample size alert. Um, and they've got the third lowest XG. Um, only Watford and Leicester are below them this season. So, yeah, if you're, if you're not creating chances, then relying on defence is a, with, when you've got lots of suspensions and injuries is a, is a risky strategy. Even if they could get a draw, I think that sets them up reasonably well for the following week. But um, if they lose, I think Arsenal will be licking their lips. Yeah, they really need more creativity on midfield. Now that Ndombele is staying, is sorted, they, they need to get the best out of him. And, and Los Celso is back with the national team. Dele Alli has had a, a good preseason, a good start uh, against City, and then he dropped. I'm still waiting to see Brian Hill, but I'm, I'm very interested to see if they will manage to have the same approach they had uh, in their first match against City because they had good chances on counter-attack, but they didn't play only on counter-attack. And at the same time, their, their three wins so far were all with uh, one goal difference. So I'm still trying to figure out what is this Nuno Spurs because 
Harry Kane didn't touch the ball on the box during the whole match against Crystal Palace. So it was very poor in terms of creativity. And I'm not expecting Spurs to be this creative machine, but they can definitely deliver more. And I think uh, the Palace performance was really below expectations, any expectations. And I think they will be a little bit more aggressive against Chelsea, but not too much because, you know, it's Chelsea, and they're having mm. this this defensive issues. So I'm not sure how they will find this balance against Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, you look at the midfield that that Spurs put out at Palace: uh, Skip, Hoiberg, and Harry Winks uh, in support of Dele Alli, uh, Lucas Moura, and Kane. I mean, that is about as pedestrian a midfield as, as you'll find from one of the leading clubs. Obviously, that's not going to be the midfield that we see all season. As Nat says, Giovanni Lo Celso should be getting some game time at some point. You desperately, desperately hope that Tungi and Dombele will, you know, will make it onto the pitch a little bit as well. Um, and I think also what that what that Palace performance uh, emphasised was the importance of, of Son Heung-min, uh, who missed the game, who is a doubt, I think, uh, for Chelsea, or, or at least certainly um, is, uh, as you know, not involved in the Europa League game against against Rennes on Thursday, um, and. Uh, yeah, I think I think having him back will, will make a big impact to the, the dynamism uh, that, that Spurs are able to to bring uh, in, in the final third. Hmm. Chelsea obviously coming off a big win over Aston Villa. Romelu Lukaku on the score sheet yet again midweek against Zenit. Although I notice he's only scored once in 11 previous starts against Spurs. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't think that's going to be a problem for Lukaku. <laughs> and uh, against against uh, Zenit, we saw how much Chelsea is showing to be a more mature team, you know, because they, they showed this patience. It, it wasn't the most entertaining match, but they, they really knew how to find the spaces and play this type of matches. And it's something that we saw City doing several times last season. And Chelsea really showed that side. And... I want to see more about Chelsea's midfield combination. We're talking about uh, Spurs midfield. Uh, now that they have Saul, because against Villa, he played alongside Kovacic for 45 minutes. But I think if he plays with uh, Kante or with Jorginho, he will be more of that box-to-box player that we saw a lot in Atletico Madrid. And, and it is his favorite position. And Chelsea has so many possibilities with this midfield. And, and Tuchel is such a great manager. So it's very interesting to see what, what he can come up with according to the opponent and now uh, against Spurs. All right. Well, Sunday late afternoon will be the time for Spurs against Chelsea. What other games are you looking forward to from this, uh, what is it, fifth match day of the Premier League season? Tom? I quite like the look of Newcastle Leeds. Friday night, under the lights at St James's Park. Steve Bruce already under pressure uh, from Newcastle fans. Both teams without a win. Um, uh, both teams who've been involved in some really entertaining, uh, high-scoring matches this season, um, and it—I mean, now that I've said all this, it, it will inevitably, inevitably be no, no. Uh, a stinker. But you've got a lot of ingredients for, for lots of goals, and you know there is a sense that both of these teams need to get their seasons up and running. Um, you know, Leeds. Uh, one-sided defeats against Man United and Liverpool draws against Everton and Burnley. Uh, Newcastle have been have been pretty poor uh, from the word go. Obviously, still without Callum Wilson, who, who's a big loss. Uh, but it 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 feels like a bit of a you know feels like it has the ingredients at least for 
for an entertaining affair. Mm, Newcastle, the only Premier League team to concede more goals than Leeds this season. So looks that way. huh? Natalie, what game are you particularly keen for? Yeah, before I get into that game, just a word on Leeds, because uh, what's happening to Leeds really intrigues me a little because we're used to seeing them exposed to, to a certain extent because they risk a lot and they play this offensive football. But against Liverpool, they had only only with air quotes, nine shots, which is not much compared to what they usually produce. So against Man United was 10. And Bielsa said uh, when he was asked on how satisfied he was with the with the first four games of the season, he said, what I'm dissatisfied is my own performance. So today Leeds has the same amount of shots in the first four rounds than Newcastle. You, you wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, who has been scoring goals. So, so it is a, an interesting fixture. I'm very curious to see how Norwich will behave from now on. They have Watford now and Norwich faced Liverpool, Manchester City, Leicester and Arsenal and a desperate Arsenal because they, they hadn't won. Uh, so uh, it was the worst fixture list any recent promoted team could face. And maybe now against Watford, we'll, we'll be able to see more clearly the positives because we only saw spells until now. They, they were very organized against Liverpool, especially on the first half. At the same time, they allowed Arsenal to have 30 shots. And against City, they were really bad. Against Leicester, they created a lot. They had like 14 shots against nine from Leicester. So, so the signs are there. They're a bit mixed. And we just need to see these positives more consistently to, to understand clearly in, in which level they can play. So I'm, I'm curious to see uh, uh, this regarding Norwich. Norwich are like the person starting on the inside lane of a 200 metres race. And when you're a kid and you're like, well, they're way back. But you don't realise that it's actually just going to even out when they go around the bend. So, um, Or is it? Yeah, I think. Or is it? Well, yeah, we'll find out. Sometimes you do get a slow person starting on the inside lane. And you think they're way, way back, and as Tom hints, they just stay way back. They certainly didn't enjoy much success against the Hornets in the championship. Of course, both these clubs coming up over the summer. The Hornets did the double over Norwich uh, with two one-nil wins. Crikey, uh, Duncan, fixture, pick one. Um, I'm going to pick Burnley Arsenal because mm. I just want people to finally accept the narrative that it isn't a tough place to go necessarily. I mean, Burnley are winless in their last 12 home league games, which is their worst run ever at Turf Moor in their entire history. Arsenal are unbeaten in their last nine away games against Burnley. Burnley have only won one of their last 29 home games against the Big Six. They only scored one goal at home against the Big Six last season, although that was in a 1-1 draw with Arsenal. But you, you will still hear that this weekend, well... It's a tough place for Arsenal to go. I'm not sure Arsenal fancy it in in Lancashire, and it's like just please, I beg you, look at look at reality. I've got one as well, Duncan. They haven't beaten Arsenal in the league at Turf Moor since December 1973. December 1973. Wow. Hey, tell you what. Speaking of Arsenal and history, today's September the 16th. On this day. In 1937, Highbury and Arsenal hosted the very first ever live TV broadcast of a football match. Did you know this? Arsenal took on Arsenal reserves in a game arranged to test this newfangled technology, television. There were only a few thousand sets in the country, 
uh, lucky viewers were enthralled to see uh, shots of the team bus, which was the number 19 from Finsbury Park. <laughs> I know it well. They played in and out of breaks with a popular tune by Mr George Formby, and the show also featured the first recorded instance of the Messi-Ronaldo-Who's-the-Goat debate. And from there, the whole industry just went from strength to strength. AFTV were outside, but they only had a gramophone. So, uh... <laughs> uh, In uh, Arsenal broadcasting first news, ten years earlier, um, oh? Arsenal's home game against Sheffield United was the first game to ever be broadcast on live radio, January 1927. Um, so both the first games to be broadcast on live radio and live TV were Arsenal home games, and only ten years apart. You wouldn't have wouldn't have guessed that. Wow, that's remarkable. And the popular notion that it was possibly that first ever live broadcast of a football match that sparked the phrase back to square one because the Radio Times, the magazine, had printed a, a diagram of the pitch with the various sections of it assigned a number each uh, is. Sadly, un- untrue, Tom. Isn't that right? Yes, the expression back to square one was never actually used in any of the uh, BBC radio commentary and didn't appear in print until the mid-1950s. Um, huh. There is uncertainty as to its precise origins. Uh, the website phrases.org.uk, which I recommend for any etymology fans out there, uh, describes it as a classic of folk etymology with lots of people certain that it comes from this particular thing but no actual mm. evidence that it does. Uh, happily, we can offer some certainty as the origins of the uh, similar phrase root one, Tom. So the phrase root one uh, came from 1960s television show Quiz Ball uh, which pitted uh, real-life footballers from real-life English and Scottish clubs uh, competing against each other and you had to try and go from one end of a uh, a pitch to the other. Um, competing how? To do, by answering questions of oh. varying degrees of difficulty. Uh, so you could either pick a slightly easier route and that would be three or four relatively easy questions, say, or you could go route one. Route one was the big Hail Mary death or glory attempt to get to the end of the pitch. A harder question, but if you got it right, you were in the goal. That's fascinating. And that's, that's where Route 1 came from. And that's what it sounded like. Extraordinary, from 1966... Uh, yeah, just looking at some images from one of the episodes, I think it's Arsenal Forest, and they're all sat, University Challenge style, four, four representatives, and one of the Forest people is uh, smoking a pipe. I'm not sure if that's from this season or 1966, but uh, I, I'll investigate. <laughs> In the meantime, we'll head back to the present day, where among the other delights afforded us by this weekend is a chance to see Top four Tastic Toffees, Everton, away at Aston Villa Saturday tea time. Let's talk about that game next. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Few among us have failed to be thrilled and delighted by the exceptional start to the season again by Everton under Rafa Benitez. They're in the top four after Monday night's victory at Burnley. Matt Jones, host of the Blue Room, joins us now. Hello, Matt. Hi, Alex. You okay? Very, very good. Thank you so much. Matt, how are you feeling ahead of, of Saturday's clash with Aston Villa? Win this and you'll have the exact same record that you had at the start of last season under Carlo Ancelotti. Yeah, and Everton went on to finish 10th that season, didn't they? After... Feeling like it was going to be a campaign to remember, but it, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about the, the team at the moment, to be honest. Albeit it's underscored by this this feeling of weirdness still, because I'm still not quite used to Rafael Benitez being the manager. Yeah, I'm still not quite used to being back in stadiums. Yeah, and Everton have just sort of felt like a bit of a a wild fever dream over the course of the the last eighteen months. Really, we've had Carlo Ancelotti come and go. We've had no fans in stadiums. We've had. James Rodriguez come and sort of go, even though he's still here at the football club. And we've all sort of come back to Goodison Park and one of the legendary figures from our rivals is stood in the in the dugout and the team's got some new faces and are playing really well. So it's all it's all very peculiar still, but the team I think looks a lot better equipped this season than it, than it did last season to sort of go and maintain consistency throughout the, the course of the campaign, I think. And, you know, Villa's going to be a tough game on Saturday, of course. Um, but the team are looking in good shape, i say. There was an extraordinary period of spending by Everton. I think transfer fees of something like half a billion. But by contrast, this summer, was it 1.7 million to bring in Demare Gray and Andros Townsend? I imagine that as unsettled as you were by seeing Rafa Benitez, you must have been pretty concerned by, by the moves that, that Everton were making ahead of the new season. Yeah, I think Everton ultimately we're going to have to take the medicine at some point when it comes to spending because you can't spend half a billion pounds, like as you mentioned there, on on the players that they have and not have some consequences further down the line. And when Everton were playing poorly and finishing in mid-table, you know, top part of the, the bottom half of the table, we were all sitting here saying, well, at some point we're going to have to pay the price for this and there's going to be damage that's, that's caused in the long term. And, and that's sort of where Everton were in the summer and... Damari Gray, obviously somebody who had sort of lost the way a little bit. Andros Townsend, a bit of a, a Premier League journeyman. I don't really think they were they were acquisitions to, to quicken pulses at Goodison Park. But but those lads were both absolutely vital on, on Monday night in particular to conjure in a stare in six minutes that you know, people have been talking about all week at Goodison Park, you know, three goals against Burnley. I think Evertonians were 
were sort of comforted by the fact that when Everton have been good in recent years in the Premier League, and maybe not recent years, but back towards David Moyes' period, it was when they were a little bit skint and it was when they had to be a little bit more cautious with the money. And people were hoping that by being sensible and being a little bit more restricted from a financial point of view that we'd see more sensible business being done. And I think what we've seen so far in Gray. Obviously, three goals in his last three games, a, a talent that looks like he, he could really kick on and become a, a major player for Everton this season. And, and Townsend, someone who the manager clearly trusts, clearly has a, a lot of faith in his worth of him before. It looks as though that sensible spending is going to yield um, a lot more productive results than some of Everton's other transfer windows in recent years. Mm. Rafa Benitez, a manager who's, who's used to working in kind of austere financial circumstances, I know that all Evertonians have to kind of name check the fact that we're not happy about him because he's a former Liverpool guy. But deep down, are you really that bothered, and particularly the way that the results have been going under him? I mean, for, for myself, going going back to the summer when this was all initially came about, it wasn't so much that he was a, a former Liverpool manager. It was sort of what what he's done in his career recently in regards to going out to China and sort of looking as though he was he was winding down and he'd had some mixed times of things at different clubs since he, he left Liverpool. So I think from my point of view, I was sort of looking at what we get in terms of Rafael Benitez, the manager, but I can't really speak for every Evertonian because there are so many layers to this. And, and while I was sitting there saying the Liverpool factor is not a factor for me, it is a factor. You, you can't deny the fact that the person who was in charge during your biggest rival was arguably great Stever Knight back in 2005. Being in charge of yourself is, you know, and your team is, is not a thing. It's, it's a factor. But I think that the stance has softened towards him in, in recent weeks. Obviously, the, the results help that. But I think that the meticulous way in which he's gone about things so far and the professional way in which he's gone about things so far is quite a contrast to someone like Carlo Angelotti, who, of course, is a fantastic football manager, but has got a very different way about doing things. He's, he's a lot more standoffish in his approach. He, he seems to delegate a lot more in regards to his coaches and, and sort of gives the players a lot more freedom. But Benitez has come in and he's, he's very active on the sidelines. He's, he's pointing towards players, you know, trying to get them in position. From what the players have said um, about him in training, he seems to be very meticulous from that point of view as well and is, is really in, in, interested in developing them as players. So... It feels like a, a better fit if you take the Liverpool thing out of it, which obviously you can't really do because if Everton go on a poor run to, you know, midway through the season or maybe you know, in the next few weeks starting to feel around Saturday, then the Liverpool thing is, is going to get brought up. But I don't think anybody really has anything bad to say about Rafael Benitez, the man. I think people know what he's like in regards to how he's helped this city. He's done amazing things for charities in the city. He's helped the Hillsborough families. So I don't think anyone really questioned him as, as, as a man. Um, but now he's starting to show that as a manager as well, he, he may still have something still to offer. Okay. Uh, will we ever see uh, Hammers in a Everton shirt again, do you think? It's difficult to say, really, because I think the club have sort of held him back from playing matches in the hope that they could still ship him out between, you know, I think there were some transfer windows across Europe that were still open, and he, he's obviously on £200,000 a week at Everton, so they were quite keen to ship those wages off the books, but they haven't managed to do so. He's still here, he, he's still training. And I think, obviously, from the time together at Real Madrid, there wasn't really a, a relationship there between James and Benitez. But the one thing I, I would absolutely say about Benitez so far is that he's shown himself to be a pragmatist. And I think if you look at someone like Rodriguez, who may not align perfectly with the way in which you want to play football, but has got incredible ability showed at times last season in the Premier League that he's still got something to offer at the highest level I think he will find ways in which he can use him and get him into the team at least up until January 
before he's available for transfer again and certainly towards the end of the season when, when his contract's up and, and Everton are going to be about Dominic Carvalhoon for a couple of weeks and that means they've had to move away from the 4-4-2 system that they played early in, in the season they played a, a back five against Burnley on Monday which didn't really work so there should be a space further up in, in the team for another player to come in and I think there's a lot of Evertonians out there who just want to see this this wonderful football or this former world-class talent actually kick a ball for them because going back to that that FIBA dream reference Everton have had this lad at the football club for over a year and now and, and, and no fan has seen him kick a ball in a competitive game in the flesh so um, it'd be nice just to see him maybe take an honorary kickoff or something like that and then get brought <laughs> off and then he can go he, he can go on his he can, he can go on his merry way just so we can all tick a box as fans Wow who knows maybe Saturday tea time at Villa Park Matt thank you so much for joining us when's the next Blue Room out? I'll be out uh, later on today previewing that game against Aston Villa. So if you want more Toffee's chat, do head over and give it a listen. Duncan, you want to talk about Everton numbers? Yeah, just um, they're not necessarily doing it in the way you might think a Rafa Benitez plus Everton combo would do. They've actually got the second lowest XG ratio in the Premier League this season, which is basically the proportion of your chances that come from um, open play versus set play. So Chelsea have got the lowest because they're Chelsea, European champions. But then it's Everton. So nearly all of their good play and their and their productive play has come from open play. And we saw that in the Burnley game, you know, that through ball for Gray's goal and, and, uh, and Townsend shot. And I, it occurred to me that, you know, there's a lot of talk with managers about you know, which managers are good at about managing huge egos, superstars, and then which managers are good at sort of getting the best out of, you know, a very limited squad. But in between that, I would say Benitez is probably the best manager at getting the best out of kind of a, a mid-table squad. And you look at players like Townsend and, and Damari Gray, and, you know, Benitez at Everton with those players can, can really make a big impact because he is very, very good at, at getting kind of eight or nine out of ten performances from generally sort of six or seven out of ten players. And, um, yeah, I've been really impressed with them so far. And I think the Villa game is is quite a big one because Villa, they kind of, Everton remind, remind me a little bit of Villa from last season. Um, and, you know, if they could win there, and, and Benitez has got a very good record against Villa, um, then I think, you know, they're really set up for a for really good first half of the season at least. Villa seems to have this potential offensive uh, that they're not fully exploring. Uh, we've seen some of it against Chelsea when they had 18 shots but didn't manage to score. They were good enough. Uh, they weren't good enough actually on, on the final third. And Everton will be a good test for them because they were very solid on defense against Burnley. But I, I'm interested as well to see the reunion between uh, Emi Martinez and Yehimina after what happened in Copa America because Martinez saved the penalty from Mina. But before the penalty was taken, there was like a lot of Martinez provoking Mina, very South American moment, you know. Even Messi got into it. He applauded Mina and said, dance now, like referring to, to his celebrations. So, so yeah, that, 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 that's uh, an extra ingredient. I, I read that... I actually read that uh, Emi Martinez afterwards wrote to to Mina and that they're good now, but it's it's a nice ingredient. I like. Yeah, it. if a spot kick gets assigned for Everton, that'd be uh, interesting. That was subplot. Uh, brilliant. All right. Well, other games that are coming up this weekend: Man United go from young boys to old friend David Moyes as they visit uh, West Ham. They actually beat the Hammers on three different occasions. Uh, last season, West Ham, of course, without the suspended Mikel Antonio. If only they still had Sebastian Allaire, eh? 
Well, indeed. And it, it, it does feel, I mean, obviously Antonio is missing through suspension, but he is also a player who has had more than his fair share of, of injury problems uh, in recent seasons. Um, and it, it does feel like a bit of an oversight for West Ham to have gone into this season uh, when they've also got to factor in uh, Europa League involvement with him as the only senior striker in the squad. So they're going to have to come up with some kind of alternative, um, you know, put one of the attacking midfielders uh, up top, whether that's Ben Rama or, or Nikola Vlasic or Jared Bowen, maybe. But yeah, not ideal. I mean, you know, obviously when Antonio's fit, he's such an integral part of the way that, that West Ham play. And I think particularly against a team like Manchester United, who are likely to leave space in behind, he'd be ideal. Um, so he's, you know, he's arguably a harder player to replace uh, than almost anyone because West Ham don't have any direct replacements for him. And he's such a, a fundamental part of the way they play. Mm-hmm. Big game coming up then for them. Sunday, two o'clock. Saturday, three o'clock, Liverpool are up against... Crystal Palace, they beat Palace home and away last season. 2-0 in this fixture, but also that 7-0 at Selhurst Park. Brighton are up against Leicester. That's Sunday at 2 o'clock as well. And the early kickoff on Saturday is Wolves against Brentford. Uh, one other match, which is Man City against Southampton, who haven't won at the Etihad since their very first visit there back in April 2004. Hmm. They've also yet to win a game in the Premier League this season, Saints. Looking forward to reviewing all of those games in Monday morning's Totally Football show. Anything you want to mention about them right now before we move on to the next bit? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how City's fans respond to this call to arms from Pep Guardiola, um, who does this quite routinely, uh, you know, sort of lament the fact that the stadium isn't always full and not always quite as noisy as he would like it. Um, and is clearly a little bit worried about the potential for a Champions League hangover. Um, and I I don't think all City fans take particularly kindly to statements like that, sort of questioning the amount of, you know, the amount of appetite for uh, for fans coming to, to home games. And yeah, obviously slightly worried about the prospect of coming up against Ralph Hasenhutl and his men. Well, and also his favourite competition, the Carabao Cup, starts for uh, for him next week against Wickham, in fact. So uh, he might be resting players in this game. I mean, if, if City do win another game by five goals, they've won their first two home games of the season, 5-0 and 5-0. They'll be the only the third top-flight team to ever do it for th- in three games in a row. Um, Aston Villa did it in 1899, when you couldn't see that on the TV or listen on the radio. Um, and then Everton in 1931. So pretty rare home dominance. And it's not like Southampton have got a recent record of letting in lots of goals in Manchester. So it probably won't happen. Much for us to be discussing then when all those games get played and we return on Monday. We're not done though today though. In a second or two, we'll be hearing from Matt Davis-Adams on the season's first sacking and more. But first though, let's get some odds from Paddy Power with producer Charlie. Thank you, James. It is producer Charlie alongside Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power chatting about the Premier League weekend, which begins with Newcastle versus Leeds. Two teams that haven't won yet. Two teams that concede loads of goals. Bielsa and Brucey. How else would you spend your Friday night? Well, probably watching Graham Norton with a large glass of wine, Charlie, in my sweatpants. But I'll make sure to tune into this game 
I felt Newcastle battled and fought courageously for large parts in what was a full-on Ronaldo typhoon last weekend at Old Trafford. Steve Bruce's men ended up losing 4-1, but were right in the game until Bruno's missile on the 80th minute mark, and that gave United breathing space with the talented Alan St. Maximum set to continue torturing and terrorising defenders. Are the Magpies a bit of value, Charlie, at 2-1 to to get their first win on the board? I think they might be. The traders make Leeds the favourites at 6-5, no surprise, and the draw is 5-2. One man who will be well worth a bet for a goal in the game, though, is Patrick Bamford, I feel. The lead striker is full of confidence after his fortnight away with England and even tried to lob the Liverpool keeper from the halfway line last week. Alisson tipped it over, but it was a fine effort from Bamford. He's 4-1 to one to score the first goal and 6-5 anytime listers. What a difference a week makes at Old Trafford. On Tuesday, United lost to Young Boys. This Sunday, will they be beaten by Moyes Boys? Well, Charlie, a massive crash back down to planet Earth for delirious United fans in midweek. But like you say, a tough assignment for Ole against David Moyes and his West Ham side. The sides met three times last season, and it was the Red Devils who came out on top on all three occasions, twice in the Premier League and once in the fifth round of the FA Cup. Although in the Cup match, it went extra time. Both the Old Trafford games were close encounters as well, though, and were decided by a single goal. But there's an argument to be made, Charlie, for West Ham, who are priced at 16-5. to The Hammers have impressed so far this season with their energy and physicality. They have two wins and two draws so far, and in Declan Rice have a midfielder, Ole Gunnar, will be pining for next summer. United themselves have just not impressed in their three-away assignments so far this season, and at 4-5 to look a little bit on the short side, Charlie. So I think David Moyes' boys could get the job done on Sunday, and that would really round off a bad few days for Ole Gunnar and his shiny new squad. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. And once you're done listening to this Totally Football show, listen, why not head over to our sister production, the Totally Football League show. There's a new one just out, uh, probably. Host Matt Davis-Adams joins us now. Matt, hello. Hi, James. Just thinking when the fun stops, stop is um, <laughs> advice that me and my kind maybe ought to take. Or, or not, because that's why mm. you do it, isn't it? You yeah. know, for the misery. And let's face it, you've had a fresh helping of that. Just last <laughs> night, midweek defeat to Borough for uh, Nottingham Forest, uh, the sixth defeat in seven uh, this season. And that's now it for Chris Hutton. Yes, uh, the least surprising managerial change in the Football League. I think the first one this season, but it's been inevitable for a while. Forest haven't won a league game since April, but uh, having been there last night, the, the atmosphere was was febrile. It was anxious. It was morose, all in one go. I think when you've when you've got Neil Warnock only on one occasion covering the fourth official in, in flex of his spittle in anger, you know that you're not doing something right. He, he knew that uh, there was no point in in trying to pick a fight because Forrest weren't there to put one up, essentially. Very, very mm. terrible start to the season, terrible performance, and yeah, here we are again. But as ever, when Forrest changed a manager, that's just a, that's just a symptom. That is not the main problem. The issue is uh, is far deeper than, than Chris Hutton and his pretty poor record, it has to be said, over the, the year mm. that he was in charge. Mm. Uh, you'll be diving deeper than the badly spelled bedsheets and, and, and that on, on Wednesday night then in, in the course of the Totally Football League show and, and keeping chipper throughout, no doubt. What, what else will you be touching on in, in, in the podcast? 
Uh, plenty more. There's, there was a full round of uh, midweek games in the Championship. First defeat for QPR, so we'll be having a look at that. Bournemouth and, and stylish Scotty Parker doing pretty well. Uh, plenty of games coming up this weekend as well. And good news for anybody in the Swindon area who needs to host a Christmas party or corporate event as well. Excellent, excellent. Oh, by the way, uh, who's currently the hot tip to be taking over from Chris Hooten as the, the latest man to fail at Forest? Well, we were we were sort of briefed last week that it might be Chris Wilder or, or John Terry, but but Daniel Taylor, who's covering this for the Athletic and who has written an excellent piece on the, on the crisis state that Forest find themselves in, said last night that that they were red herrings, which is certainly good news in the case of John Terry. Uh, I don't know is is the honest answer, James, because I'm not sure who would want to take it. If if it was up to me, I would go Chris Wilder first choice and Michael Appleton, if not him. But you know, maybe there's a case to be made to say that Gary Brazil, who's been care taker before and runs the academy which is the only positive thing about Forrest and has been for a long time maybe it's worth giving him a go but but who knows either way we find ourselves what seven games into the season exactly the same position as last time having written this one off as as anything other than trying to stop going into league one again so yeah that's the sound of my salty tears hitting the keyboard that you can hear crikey and if you enjoyed those many more available very shortly on the totally football league show and you'll also be appearing today matt on straight out of cobham the dedicated chelsea podcast yes that's a cheerier pod uh, i think it's fair to say yeah so mm. dominic fifield and simon johnson joining me for that will be breaking down the zenit game and looking ahead to tottenham on the weekend always always a bit more positive in the world of chelsea than it is in nottingham forest it, it, it is nice to have that footballing yin and yang in my life i must say Superb. Matt, many thanks. Pleasure. Natalie, a quick word to finish perhaps today on Danny Alves. Yeah, he's a free agent. So 38 years old. He came to Sao Paulo with a big project around him and a high salary that wasn't honored. So the club tried recently to negotiate what they, they owned to him, but he didn't accept any of the, the two offers. And he didn't play in the level that was expected. And he decided to play in the Olympics, which really annoyed a lot of Sao Paulo fans because they had important matches at the time. And, and he defended his choice. He stood by his choice of playing for the national team in the Olympics. So by now, the relationship between club and him was not great. Fans were annoyed with him. And after the international break, he refused to play again uh, for Sao Paulo until he got paid what the club is owing him. So he has a contract with Sao Paulo until December 2022. He really wants to be in the World Cup. So so this is important because we don't know where he could play because the Mm. transfer window in Europe is obviously closed. And he mentioned before that the only club in Brazil he would play for was Sao Paulo which is the club he's leaving. So maybe he's heading, I don't know, Mexico, Argentina, but nobody really knows. Even if you're a free agent, you can't sign outside of the transfer window. In France, you're allowed to, you're allowed to sign a joker um, after the transfer He'd certainly window fit was that closed. Bill. He certainly would. Um, Bordeaux are about to sign Mbainiang from uh, Rennes as uh, un joker. And it's like you've got this like one free hit uh, I think every club has one massive joker playing card that they have to carry to the offices of the French League and, and slap down on the table um, and then right. they can make the transfer. And that doesn't give you works. double points in that fixture or anything, that week's fixture? Not as far as I know. Not unless Bruce Forsyth is the referee. But Or if you're Barcelona, you can sign Martin Braithwaite in February. That's always an option. 
there you mm. go. Another sort of joke, I and mean, very much a, a jokey transfer in so many ways. Mm. All right, well, Danny Alves, possibly heading to a club near you. That brings us to the end of today's Totally, though. So many, many thanks. It's been hugely enjoyable. Uh, Duncan, Natalie and Tom and producer Charlie. Listen, I hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll be back with us Monday lunchtime-ish because of our new slightly rejigged schedule as we look back on all the stuff. Have a great weekend and from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.